We're continuing our Old Testament examples of prayer here today on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Join us as we see some marvelous examples of what prayer should be all about. Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. We're continuing our series, Old Testament Examples of Prayer. We find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 32, where we understand today that to pray by faith for God to fulfill His promises, we have to appeal to God's character. And really, when we do that, we're reminding ourselves of just how capable God really is of answering our prayers. Marvelous look at prayer next. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. When you go out into the beautiful creation that God has put before us, hopefully as a believer you can sit back and you can look at what God has created and you can say, wow, this is incredible. And we can look at multiple examples of God's design. But see, the the world doesn't look at it that way. The Bible says that they, they kind of put the truth aside. And even though God has given them the witness of his creation and the witness of our conscience, why do you think it's wrong for somebody to go out and kill another person? I mean, why do you think that's wrong? Because God has put that in our hearts. He's put that in our conscience. Why do you think it's wrong to steal someone else's property? Well, yeah, the law says, but where did the law come from? It's our conscience. We know that's wrong. Something tells us it's wrong. And so it's, it's, it's very important here that we understand that, that God is, is this incredible being, but he demands us to follow his commands. Second point there is to pray by faith for God to fulfill his promises. We must appeal to God's character. The first point under that was God is all-powerful. That's what he says in, in verse 17. Look at what he says, verse chapter 32. Our Lord God, we sang this this morning, right? Is it you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm? Nothing is too difficult or nothing is too hard for you. We sang that chorus this morning, you know. Side note, you know, some people... You know, get all over that. You know, you should sing just hymns, only hymns, no no choruses. Well, you know what? If you have a problem with singing back the word of God to the man, the the God who gave it to us, I don't know what to tell you. God is all-powerful. He points that out there. Secondly, God is gracious. Look at verse 18. He says, you showed steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. That word, loving kindness, in the original language comes from the word stork. (laughs) Believe it or not, it's kind of an interesting word. It has the the picture of, if you know anything about about storks, they, they do extraordinarily in the area of caring for their young. I mean, there's nothing quite like an adult stork caring for its little baby stork. And Israel understood that, and they, they, they understood this language. They said, wow, this is, this is what God does for us. God protects us in spite of ourselves sometimes. We need to be reminded of that, that we serve a, God, a gracious God. He's all-powerful, but he's also gracious. It would be one thing if God was all-powerful, but he wasn't gracious. That would not be a very good God. Praise God for his, his grace. Praise God for his ability to communicate that grace through us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, God is settled in his wrath against all sin. Sometimes we forget this point. God is settled in his wrath against all sin. It's very important that we 
we come to understand the idea that, that God is, a, is his, his wrath is real. I mean, yeah, we serve a loving God. But God also has a side of him that is, is just unbridled wrath against all sin. That's why we need a Savior to protect us from God's wrath, from God's anger, from God's judgment. It's interesting in this, this text in Jeremiah 32, he goes right from God being all-powerful to God being gracious. And then almost without even skipping a beat, you know what? Don't forget, even though God is gracious, he still has wrath against all sin. It says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. You reward each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. I mean, we live in a day today, beloved, that is, is so tolerant of sin on every, every side. See, there's a direct connection here. If you look at verse 23, there's a direct connection between Israel's sin, between Israel's sin and their, the experience that they're having, the calamity that they're having. It says, and they entered and took possession of it, but they did not what? Obey your voice or walk in your law. Matter of fact, they didn't do anything. They didn't do squat of all that you have commanded them to do. Therefore, as a result of their disobedience, you have made all this disaster to come upon them. Sometimes we think because we live under grace that somehow we are sequestered from God's discipline. God does not judge the believer, but he disciplines us. If we're willfully sinning before our God, he's not just going to close his eyes and say, oh yeah, Jesus paid for all your sins, that's okay, go do whatever you want. That's not the God we serve. He says, no, I love you as a, as a father loves his child. I'm going I'm to discipline you. I'm going to make it hard on you because you're not doing what I've asked you to do or you're willingly doing what I told you not to do. Look at verse 30 and 35. 30 to 35, he kind of affirms, God affirms Jeremiah's words by stating the reason for his anger. And the reason was there, Israel's repeated sin. They just kept on doing it over and over again. You know, in the church, we call that a besetting sin. <laughs> well, you know, the brother, he has a besetting sin. and We just have to be understanding. It says, for the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in the sight from their youth, the children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger. See, there is a righteous anger. We, we talked a little bit about this Wednesday night in our study. And someone said, well, well, what's the, you know, where's the line? How do you know when your anger is righteous and when it becomes unrighteous? Do you get angry? I do. I get angry at a lot of different things. Sit down, watch the news, and I really get angry. The Giants playing a game and they're just, you know, all thumbs. I get really angry. It's like, come on, guys. You hear about something going on in the, in the community or you hear about something going on in the government it just gets you angry or you hear about the plight of, of Christians in some countries where they're being slaughtered because of their faith. You get angry. Sometimes you don't communicate properly with your wife. You get angry. She gets angry. And we're both angry. It's this big, big anger fest, you know. Well, God gets angry, but it's righteous anger. The difference, really, between the kind of anger that we're talking about here and, and righteous anger is whenever you're angry and it causes you to do something, whatever it may be, it could be think a thought, it could be actually act out, it could be saying something. Whenever it causes you to do something that's not in accord with God's word or God's plan or God's purpose for you, or it brings dishonor to Christ, that's the wrong kind of anger. 
But if you can be angry about something and handle it in a way that's honoring to Christ, that's okay. We're not called to be little mamby-pamby Christians that lay down and let everybody walk all over us. Jesus wasn't that way. I mean, Jesus was a man who actually went into the temple one day and started throwing over tables, turning over tables and kicking those people out who were basically turning his father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. He was angry, but it was righteous anger. He was angry against the right things. And he lets Jeremiah here know that he isn't going to do any miracles to deliver Israel from the consequences of their sin. We live every day of our lives in this world with a a daily tolerance towards sin. We just do. I think the only person we don't tolerate is the one who is not tolerant of other person's sins. I mean, even within the church, there's a mentality going around that, you know what, you just have to be tolerant of everybody. And, you know, if a brother or sister's in sin, you know, you just love them. No, that's not what the Bible says. That's just not what the Bible says. When you know a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, is doing something, they're living in disobedience toward God or His Word, somehow we think, oh, well, you know, grace means we just love them anyway and just accept them the way they are. That's wrong. Often they erroneously thought that in the Old Testament, and God was angry as a result of it. He was judgmental. And by the time you get to the New Testament... They think somehow this this God who was angry back here in the Old Testament and judgmental, well, in the New Testament, you know, the old man just kind of mellowed out a little bit and he's willing to just kind of let everything go under all the water under the bridge. You know, Jesus died for our sins and let's just have a gracious time. He doesn't get upset about sin anymore. What they fail to understand is both God's grace and his wrath against sin are revealed in both the Old and the New Testament. His grace doesn't mean that you shrug off somebody else's sin, or your own for that matter. He deals with our sin, disciplines us because he loves us. He doesn't want to see us go down that path. He doesn't want to see us continue in that vein that this misrepresents him. In Romans, all the way over Romans chapter 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Here he's talking about the Gentiles being brought in to God's family and everything. But all the way down in verse 21 Start in verse 20. He says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Some do not become proud, but fear. Verse 21. But if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22. Here's, Here's what I want you to look at. Note, then the kindness and the what? The severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continual Continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Wow. We don't read those kind of verses enough. We fail to see the, we see all the kindness of God, but we fail to see the, the judgment, the wrath, the severity of God. Or even in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us what? Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the, what's it say? Fear of God. We need to get back to the understanding that God is holy, that God is righteous, and that we need to fear Him as our Creator and as our Savior, as our God. 
Not that you mean you cower in the corner because you're afraid he'll squash you like a bug, but that idea of fear has the idea of, of just holy reverence, of realizing that God is so much greater than you, and yet he has provided for your salvation through Christ. See, we can't pray in faith unless we are obedient to God's difficult commands and unless we appeal to the character of God as he really is. He's all-powerful, he's gracious, But also, please understand, he's settled in his wrath against sin. We need to remember those things, those elements. The third thing here I want you to see this morning, we'll wrap this up, is not only that we have to be obedient to God's difficult commands, or secondly, that we must appeal to God's character, that he's powerful, gracious, and his wrath is real against sin. But thirdly, to pray by faith for God to fulfill his promises, we must understand God's sovereign purpose. We must understand God's sovereign purpose. God's sovereign purpose is to be glorified. That's what his sovereign purpose is. Through both the salvation of his elect and even the just condemnation of the wicked. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 5 there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. And to this end we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you And you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you turn to Romans, Romans chapter 9. See, God has a plan. He has a purpose, not only for those who come to know him, but he has a plan. He has a purpose for those who don't. In verse 21, chapter 9, verse 21, it says, actually start in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? Talking about God. But who are you? (laughs) O man, to answer back to God, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Talking about a person who makes clay pots. Has, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor use and another for dishonor, dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before, beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. In her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. 
and in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. See, it's important to to realize, beloved, that God's sovereign purpose is both for concerning his salvation and also for those who are being condemned as wicked. In spite of how much it may seem that the the wicked prosper in our day and age. I don't know about you, but that's one thing that makes me angry. You know, as a believer, you're trying to do the right things, whatever, you just can't seem to, you know, make the, get, get ends to meet kind of a thing. And yet you see your neighbor who's totally living for himself and selfish reasons and doing things that dishonor God and, and boy, they're just doing very well. <laughs> Sometimes that, that angers you. But in spite of that, we have to remember while they trample God's people underfoot, God will save those whom Jesus purchased. And he's going to do it from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Revelation 5.9 says that. And then it says he will judge those who are wicked, those who have rejected his son. And that theme runs all the way through Jeremiah uh, 31 through 33. Chapter 31, God really promises to make that uh, new covenant with his people and to establish them in the land. Then in chapter uh, 32, he tests Jeremiah's faith by really telling him to, to buy this field and to right in the, the, the face of the Chaldeans' victory. They're clearly under the judgment of Israel's sin. And yet, he says, no, buy this field. Tell them, basically, you're not gonna, they're not going to win this battle. This is what I want you to do. And in the face of both the, the terrible enemy that's besieging the wall at the time and even Israel's great sin, Jeremiah, maybe he gets a little confused and he begins to wonder, how can God put all this together? Do you ever feel that way? You're in the midst of a trial or a circumstance and you're praying, you're trying to do the right thing and you step back and you're like, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. It just doesn't seem like there's any hope. The hard facts of the present and his promises of the future. He says, behold, the, the siege mounds have come up to the city and take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who we are fighting against. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, we see it. That's the present. That's what's going on. There are hard facts. Sometimes we have things that just, you know, the wheels fall off the cart, even in our own lives sometimes. We don't make the right decisions. And we have a choice to either sit there in that pile of muck and, and just feel sorry for ourselves or say, you know what? I'm going to trust God to get me through this, and I'm going to do the right thing from here on. And that's what he says in verse 25. Jeremiah thirty two twenty five. he says, Yet you, in other words, in spite of all this disobedience, in spite of all this judgment and sword and famine and pestilence coming against us, he says, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, but go buy this field with the money and get witnesses through the city, even though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. He says, You know what? I know it doesn't make sense. Just do what I told you to do. And trust me to carry out my promises. And yet, even though he's confused, he affirms what God has spoken to him. And it, it seems that, you know, it, it's a fact. It's something that's going to take place. He says in the end of verse 24 there, and you will, be, you will see it. I believe it. See, knowing that God's sovereign purpose will be fulfilled, I don't know about you, but that definitely helped Jeremiah to trust in God. When you know God is going to carry out his plan for you, in spite of yourself sometimes, we can trust the Lord to bring us through hard times, terrible times. Sometimes when you look at the church and you sit back and you realize, wow, you know, just things don't seem to be going right or things, you know, whatever, you know, wish there was more people, wish this, wish that, whatever. You know, you can get discouraged. 
And yet you got to go back and you got to say, you know what? I hold on to that promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. You just be faithful to do what I've called you to do. And that's what we have to do when we, when we get in those kind of times. In John chapter 6, verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing. This is Jesus Christ speaking, but will raise it up on the last day. You know what? In spite of myself, in spite of, of my own personality issues, in spite of my own sin issues, in spite of everything, I know that because I've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day he will carry out his plan in my life. One day that will happen. It will become reality. I will be in his presence. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is and the work that he's done on my behalf. And so when we understand God's sovereign purpose and we understand God's sovereign power, instead of disparaging over our, our, our current circumstances or plights or trials or tribulations, we can pray by faith that God, you know what, fulfill your promise. And we know that God has purposed to do that in us in spite of how difficult it may be the circumstance we find it. I mean, you know what Jeremiah was known as, right? Anybody know? The weeping prophet. You know, tell that to somebody like Joel Olstein. You know, he's just got that permanent smile on his face all the time. Thinks everybody thinks just be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I mean, this guy served God, but he was weeping. I mean, his whole ministry was that way. It was difficult. It was, it was very difficult. He had faithfully preached for years, but no one listened. <laughs> no one. Instead, what happens? He's doing the right thing. He suffers persecution. And then he suffers imprisonment. I mean, he was really on the, the, the edge of witnessing this horrible thing as the Chaldeans took over, would take Jerusalem, burn it, take the temple down to the ground, slaughter many of the people that he knew and the, the inhabitants there, take most of the other ones back into captivity. Even the few that were left in the land they wouldn't even listen to Jeremiah. They stubbornly went to Egypt against God's command. You read about that in Jeremiah 42. But see, the God who delivered Israel into the hands of the Babylonians also promised Jeremiah that he would gather them out of those lands where he had driven them and bring them back to Jerusalem and make them dwell there in safety. He would be their God and they would be his people. He would never turn away from his covenant to do them good. In Jeremiah 32, verse 37 it says, I will gather, I will fulfill my, my promise here, all the way down to, to verse 41. That's going to take place one day. Now, poor Jeremiah never lived <laughs> to see these promises fulfilled. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. But because he believed in a sovereign God that would fulfill his, all his promises to his people, Jeremiah could only obey God's difficult commands. He could only trust that God would somehow do what's humanly impossible. I have a little picture frame in my office. It says, attempt something so impossible that unless God is in it, it's doomed to failure. See, that's what God calls us to do every day. What? Live a life that's honoring him every day. That's impossible. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that every day. It's like, God, why can't I just get through the day without somehow being drawn down this, this road of sin in some direction? Word, thought, deed, whatever it might be. It reminds me, you're not perfect. That's why you need a Savior. That's, that's why you're relying on me. That's why you have to trust in me to live this life. You can't do it. You need to be filled with the Spirit each and every day. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth. 
We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come out and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., and we offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children through grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, give us a call at the Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. 650-366-9923, or visit our website, gracefultruth.org. And now, to close out our time together, once again, here's Pastor Steve Converse. Thanks, Andy. I'd just like to share a few brief thoughts with our listening audience concerning some upcoming events here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. Most people are familiar with American pastor Zaid Abedini, who is being held in an Iranian prison due to his faith in Christ. We will be hosting Pastor Zaid's wife, Nagmeh, on Saturday, November 16th at 10 a.m., where she'll be sharing her testimony of how her and her children are getting through this tremendous ordeal and how God continues to work in spite of her husband's persecution and imprisonment. Coming to Grace Bible Church, Redwood City, on Saturday, November 16th at 10 a.m., that's Nagme Abedini, Pastor Zaid's wife, to share her testimony. Well, once again, we want to thank you for listening to Graceful Truth each weekend, and it would be a wonderful encouragement to us to hear from you about how this program has been a blessing to your hearts. Please contact us on the web at gracefultruth.org, that's gracefultruth.org, or simply call us at 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. Well, thank you, Steve. And again, friend, we would love to hear from you. Again, the ways you can contact us, we have a couple three. First, our phone number, 650-366-9923. Of course, everything that Pastor Steve mentioned a moment ago can be found on our website, gracefultruth.org. Again, you can get to us at gracefultruth.org. So take a moment and write when you stop by gracefultruth.org or simply call us at 650-366-9923. 9923. Our thanks to you for joining us today, and until next week at this same time, God bless. Mm-hmm.